Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. Uh, this time we've got the new version of the Linux kernel, version 6.4, that has some nice boosts for AMD CPUs, notably on laptop for performance and battery life. We've got more advancements on the free and open source NVIDIA driver called NVK, and we've got some nice GNOME improvements for gaming, especially on Wayland. So, as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes, and all the links to support the show are in the show notes as well. So, let's get started. So, the Linux kernel version 6.4 is now out, and of course, its completely free software pendant is here as well, removing all the potential binary blobs uh, from the normal Linux kernel as well. So, the headline change, well, for me at least, is support for AMD guided autonomous mode. Uh, This is something AMD uses on their Epic and Ryzen CPUs. And what it does is basically mixes the operating system and the CPU driver to select a performance level automatically, depending on the current workload. Now, basically the OS defines a minimum and a maximum performance level but then the CPU is in charge of selecting the best frequency to use in this specific range, depending on what you're doing on your computer. So it should result in better power efficiency, so also better battery life on laptops, and better performance for AMD CPUs. The previously supported modes were the OS decides everything, or the CPU decides everything, and treats the OS limitations as more of a guide than an obligation. So obviously this didn't make use of all the available information about what you were doing, the power state you wanted your laptop or computer to be on, uh, to reach a good balance between performance and power usage. So with support for this mode, you can expect better battery life on your laptops with Ryzen CPUs. The Linux kernel version 6.4 also added support for the M2 chips from Apple, but it's still the bare-bones initial support. It's similar to what the M1 chips have on the mainline Linux kernel, so not every part of the chipset works. Uh, For example, here, the display output on M2 Mac minis doesn't work, and it only supports the chipset, not the whole MacBook or Mac hardware, which means that the laptops might still not have keyboard support or touchpad support right in the mainline Linux kernel. It's just for the CPU, the GPU, the internal memory and storage, and that's about it. So if you want to use Linux on Apple Silicon, you're still going to need Azahi. It's not full mainline support just yet. It's not ready. Another big feature from 6.4 is improved sensor monitoring for 100 Asus motherboards uh, for their Intel and for their AMD variants, which means that all temperature sensors should work better and report more accurate information which in turn will probably also lead to better support, better performance that adjusts in real time. It's just better if you have an Asus motherboard. And we also have some improvements to various file formats for X4, NTFS, BetterFS, and there's added support for a few more Intel-related features as well. It's, It's cool stuff this time around, especially for AMD users, and it sort of feels like AMD is the best option for Linux users these days in terms of GPU, and CPU. I don't know if that's because Valve opted for AMD for their Steam Deck and so there's more work on AMD drivers. I'm not sure if uh, that works specifically for the guided autonomous mode 
on Ryzen CPUs. I'm not sure if it comes from Valve or from someone else, uh, maybe just from AMD itself, uh, probably. But it feels like AMD hardware is the place to be. Uh, their CPUs and their GPUs keep getting better performance, more feature support, better battery life over time. And it's the whole range of CPUs and GPUs that gain that. So it's really, really nice. You're when you buy AMD hardware for Linux, you can expect it to perform better as time goes on, which is rarely the case. Generally, the performance you get is the performance you get. So yeah, definitely great. And for example, my Ryzen 7 5800X on my editing rig, it still feels like an awesome performance beast. Even a few years in, I don't feel the need to replace it at all. And the new GPU I just bought, well, relatively new, the 6650 XT that I have on my SteamOS console, I made a video about this very recently on the YouTube channel, it also feels like it's more powerful than my NVIDIA uh, RTX 3070, which on paper should be about 30% better. So yeah, it really feels like AMD is the place to be right now on Linux. Now, still on hardware and drivers, there are news from NVK, the fully open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA GPUs. And this thing started uh, being developed after NVIDIA dropped a lot of source uh, for their own driver and some specifications for their GPUs. NVIDIA didn't really do anything with that. Like they keep uploading some more source, but the driver that they offer is basically not progressing very fast and it's not usable in day-to-day -day use. But the community picked up thanks to all that source and all this data that NVIDIA made available and created NVK. And the goal for NVK is to be included in Mesa, which already includes a driver for Intel GPUs and for AMD GPUs. So it's meant to be the completely functional open source pendant of the NVIDIA driver with the same kind of support. And it's been under active development for nine months. And now it just gained support for older NVIDIA GPUs as well. It only supported the latest RTX architecture. And now it also supports Maxwell and Kepler. And on top of that, they added support for geometry, tessellation and transform feedback. And they improved support for translation layers like DXVK with which Collabora actually managed to get some games running, like Hollow Knight or Formula 1 2017. Now, of course, it is still not production ready. It is not feature complete. You can probably test drive it if you want, but chances are it's not going to give you a great experience just yet. They also added support for various Vulkan extensions, and their goal is to support the entire Vulkan spec version 1.3 in the very near future. Now, of course, there is no time frame just yet for when a usable, stable version of NVK would be available and would be shipped with Mesa out of the box. Uh, they also said they will need a specific kernel API for it to work correctly. So we will have to wait for first the driver to be included in Mesa, probably as a first beta or alpha. And we'll also need uh, the Linux kernel to support uh, a connection, an API for that driver. So it's still not ready. But it's moving quite fast, like it's already able to play some games, so it's already at the same state that the Nuvo driver is, uh, which, to their credit, they had to build uh, by completely reverse engineering everything. So it's normal that NVK would be moving much faster than Nuvo has been, because, well, they have a lot more specifications to, to work on that. It's a brand new driver. And it's super interesting, because in the, let's say, a few years, in the near future, 
This means that the Mesa drivers on Linux will offer good support for NVIDIA GPUs with a fully open source driver, uh, which if you compare it to Nuvo, it's still barely enough to drive a display. On some cards, it even doesn't support all the resolutions your display could actually support. Now, the proprietary driver for NVIDIA GPUs will definitely keep the edge for a long time, especially in a few professional scenarios. Uh, I'm guessing for use with uh, CUDA, with OpenCL, for some compute tasks, you probably will still need the NVIDIA driver. Uh, I'm thinking about running DaVinci Resolve, for example. I would be surprised if the NVK driver managed to do that immediately after it's released. I would be very surprised. But for gamers and the general public, I would say in a few years, all NVIDIA GPUs will just run with NVK instead of needing the NVIDIA drivers. And this would make the experience much, much better. And my reasoning here is that probably NVIDIA would be okay with that. And they would probably even start contributing to an open source driver once it's actually completely usable. What I'm thinking is they dropped that source, not necessarily because they want to have a open source driver that they develop and they maintain, but I think they were kind of hoping that the community would do it for them and then they can just contribute to it bit by bit or just keep releasing the sources uh, and some specifications for their latest hardware and say, you know what? Yeah, the community is doing it. We're still offering our proprietary drivers, so we're still supporting Linux, but we're helping the community as well. And at some point, maybe if the driver is completely ready and supports all use cases, maybe they'll just say, hey, now we're only supporting like the open source driver, we'll contribute to it. And for very specific niche cases, you've got this proprietary driver as well. Basically exactly what AMD did. Uh, at some point, AMD had only proprietary drivers uh, and the, the open source drivers were a reverse engineering of their hardware. And bit by bit, they started working more and more with the community and open source. And nowadays, you can still have the AMD GPU Pro driver to support specific professional features that are not allowed for licensing reasons in an open source driver. But generally, everybody just uses the normal open source driver. And I'm thinking NVIDIA is probably trying to be in that same position over time, but they can't just outright say, hey, you know what, the community, do the driver for us, it's going to be better. Now, personally, I can't say I experienced any issues with the NVIDIA drivers. I even made a video about this. But judging from the comments, it's clear that it's not the general case. A lot of people seem to have a lot of issues with the proprietary drivers. So yeah, if I could just run everything I do right now on a free and open source driver, I would absolutely jump at the occasion. So I'll be following the NVK drivers progress very closely because I'm very interested in what they will land on. Now, on the GNOME side of things, uh, it seems that we're going to be getting some pretty awesome optimizations uh, for gaming, specifically on Wayland. And as we all know, gaming on Wayland is not the best use case. Uh, well, especially if you were going to run games through Proton, which is not native to Wayland, you're running X Wayland, so there are some performance overhead and some issues here and there. And so now Mutter, which is the compositor and window manager for GNOME, has received some code uh, to no longer block a specific function that was used to query for GPU timestamps. Apparently they don't need to do that anymore, and so they don't need to call that function over and over again. Uh, and this function was apparently causing stutters and missed frames on Wayland, so these could be reduced or completely eliminated which means that you could play games with a much better frame pacing, with much 
much stabler, a much more stable uh, frame rate and, and just better FPS generally. And this change will also make variable refresh rate smoother on AMD GPUs and it simplifies the code base by about 200 lines, which is always nice because the less code lines you have, the less chances you will have to miss a bug or to create one or to have some compatibility problems in the future. So it should make Wayland gaming a lot smoother than it was. Uh, since it was merged right now, I would expect it to land in GNOME 45, but I'm not sure yet. But it's been merged in the code base of Mudder, so we can probably expect it for GNOME 45. Uh, so that's one more use case for Wayland that is getting better. Of course, until Wine and Proton support Wayland natively, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the gaming news segment of this show. Until this happens, you're still going to have a marginally worse experience than on X11, but it's still one more step to make Wayland better for everyone and every use case. Now, and since we're talking about GNOME, uh, they're also making progress on their libraries and their apps. Uh, Libidvita gained a new back button that lets you move back multiple steps at once in a stack. So basically you click the back button, you right click the back button, you get a list of all the various pages you can, you can go back to. Like in a web browser, for example, where you can just, uh, in certain web browsers, uh, either click and hold on the back button or right click it, and you'll see a list of all the history you can navigate to. So this is pretty cool uh, for apps that have pages that slot on top of each other, especially for uh, mobile applications where navigation can't really have a permanent sidebar uh, to navigate back to. In terms of apps, it's a much less active week than usual, but there are still some interesting things. Uh, first, Tube Converter changed names. It's now called Parabolic, but it's still the same video downloading app with a bunch of nice features. It's an app I used very often uh, to re-download some old videos that I didn't back up. Uh, there's iPlan, which is still the to-do list and project management app. It gained a chart of the time you spent on specific projects, and it is now more adaptive, so you can run it on a phone, even though nobody does that just yet. And you can now prevent this app from running in the background if you don't want it to. But interestingly as well, uh, they've been working on GNOME displays, which is a way to screencast the content of a device onto another display. And they've added a DBus interface, which means that the list of devices you can cast your screen to is now exposed. Uh, which means that GNOME can now use, well, will be able to use uh, GNOME displays as a backend for other projects. It could be integrated in any app, any portal, the GNOME shell itself. So it could mean that any app would have a small button that says cast this and it would list all the displays that are available or compatible and you could just cast your screen from any app or straight from the GNOME shell, which is pretty cool, uh, easier to set up, basically like what Chromecast does. So that's pretty nice. So it's a smaller week in terms of development, but progress has been so fast on the GNOME app ecosystem that I can't really complain about any of this. Now, in the realm of KDE development, it's the same thing, a uh, slower week uh, than usual, but probably like the holiday period must have started, so I'm not very surprised. So of course, they are still hacking away at Plasma 6. Uh, they've overhauled the documentation, the Plasma 6 info page, uh, now there, there are steps to let you know how you can use Plasma 6, how you can test it. And they have a list of bugs uh, that you can tackle if you want to get started uh, on hacking on KDE, if you want to speed up the development of Plasma 6, if you know what you're doing. There are a list of bugs that you can now choose and tackle. So they're making it easier for people to get into KDE development. 
Uh, in terms of features, uh, KRunner will now have a new autocomplete behavior. It will be inline autocomplete, so you start typing a few letters, and then you have the rest of what it offers you as autocomplete uh, appear as a gray placeholder, and you either use the right arrow key or the tab key to select that autocomplete and run uh, the, the request. Uh, the keyboard indicator in the plasma panels will also now display the state of caps lock and num lock, and the volume icon will now change color when you raise volume above 100%. So, for example, if you have over amplification enabled and you let your speakers go to 125%, if you go to that, your, your speaker icon will be red, uh, or at least the volume that comes out of the speaker icon will become red or orange, so you can see that you're above the normal limit. Now, there are smaller improvements as well that won't be limited to Plasma 6. They're coming to Plasma 5.27 and the current suite of Plasma apps. There's a fix for Gwenview, which was crashing when you were opening a .nef image, which is a, a raw image file format, so now it won't crash anymore. There's apparently a big performance fix for the Wayland session on Intel GPUs. And the system monitor gained back support for NVIDIA GPU, so for all the sensors and temperatures and fan speeds and stuff like that. Uh, it had lost this capability with the NVIDIA 535 drivers, and now it gained it back. And they apparently revamped that backend, so it's more independent of driver-specific changes, so it shouldn't break as often. And also the panels, when they auto-hide, uh, used to have a visual glitch when you were using a dark theme, and this has been fixed as well. And they also fixed 68 bugs of all kinds, and, and that affect basically the whole KD Plasma experience uh, this week. So that's pretty nice. Now, about Fedora, they are working on their revamped Anaconda installer, and it looks like it might uh, debut in Fedora 39. Uh, this new Anaconda version is based on web technologies, and it's actually named Anaconda Web UI. Uh, so what I gather from this is that they kept the backend of Anaconda, which was fine, it worked, it installed an operating system, it was good enough, uh, but they revamped the UI with web technologies. Uh, apparently they use React, JS, and the cockpit framework, and their end goal is to have the exact same feature set as the current Anaconda installer, without sucking as much as the current Anaconda, which places buttons in all the weirdest places, have very cryptic error messages. It's just not a very user-friendly installer if you haven't used it before. Now, of course, this new version is not complete just yet. And so if, if the proposal to include it in Fedora 39 is accepted, it would only be for Fedora Workstation and not the other editions, not the other spins, uh, workstation GNOME basically being the default, it's the use case that has been worked on the most, so it's probably ready for that, but it might not be able to handle installing every other spin or edition or variant. So that they're gonna that would be a test drive basically for this new installer. It's just a proposal, it could be rejected, it might be a little bit too soon uh, for a complete installer change, depending on how well development has progressed, but I guess the Fedora 39 beta will be the judge of that, like, if it crashes for everybody, if it fails to install, if it has specific use cases that aren't supported well enough, then they can always just go back to the previous Anaconda installer. It's, it's not, it's, they're not taking a huge risk by putting it out there in a beta. Now, judging from the screenshots that they shared, it looks pretty nice, it looks easy to understand. It's very simple, very bland looking, but it looks 
better than the previous one in terms of how the things are laid out, how you can understand how it progresses. It uses a more normal progression system instead of a hub where you click on keyboard layout, you're taking to another page, you set up the keyboard layout, you have to go back, then you go do the same thing for partitioning on a specific page. And if you haven't selected the right options, you can proceed to install, but you don't really know why. Now they have a more step-by-step -step installer, which is what users are used to, and I think it will be better. Now, if you compare it with other installers that were developed recently, like Ubuntu took about two or three years to build their new installer. So if Fedora can produce one in under a year, it really will make Canonical look pretty bad. Well, I mean, maybe Canonical revamped the backend as well and not just the user interface, but they both use what are basically web technologies. So yeah, if they manage to release a complete and featureful installer in less than a year, then yeah, <laughs> what, have, what has Ubuntu been doing with their own installer that just right now released uh, with 23.04? Now we also have news about React OS. And if you don't know what it is, it's to Windows what Wine is to Windows gaming and apps. It's basically an open source implementation of the entirety of Windows. Uh, shell, programs, default apps, APIs, everything. Not just the APIs that you need to run programs and games. They have their own kernel, their own re-implementation of the anti-kernel. It's basically a reverse engineering of, of Windows, but in open source format. And it also is based on a lot of work that Wine does. It's, it's a very interesting project, but it kind of looked like it might have been dead if you didn't really follow uh, the source code that they shared. And they just posted a new newsletter. The last one dated from August 2021. And the latest release of React OS dates from December 2021. So it looked sort of like stalled or dead, but apparently not. There's still a lot of work happening on it. And I think I wanted to report on that because it's actually quite a fun project. Uh, they have a 64-bit port, which is still underway. They do not support 64-bit just yet. And there's a lot of work happening on their own kernel. And they also have their own notepad and paint implementations that received some attention as well. The security subsystem for the kernel was improved. And they use a registry just like Windows. And they're, they're putting a lot of love into this registry to let it self-heal in case uh, parts of it get corrupted. Apparently, this is a critical step for them to be able to move React OS to beta status. Uh, so they're working on that. And they're also working on an input method editor, or IME, to better support more languages, especially languages that need a combination of keys to produce a single symbol uh, for Japanese and other Asian languages, for example, other writing systems than just the regular Latin alphabet. So it's a fascinating project, at least for me. And it has existed ever since I started using Linux. I started in 2006, and I'm pretty sure it already existed at that time. And since then, I kind of thought it was abandoned. Like, you never hear about it. They never really talk about I think the last time I heard about it was in a Linus Tech Tips video uh, where they used it to simulate uh, a very old Windows because it, it basically acts like older versions of Windows and it was easier to get React OS running than like Windows 98 or Windows ME. But yeah, I never really heard about it since then. So it's nice to see that they're still working at it. It's not something I would use personally, but the scope of what they're doing is kind of insane. So I think it like it deserves a little mention in this show. And maybe it even deserves its own video. It could be quite fun to see what they're doing and how it works. Maybe I'll wait for the next release, but yeah, that could be pretty cool.
Now you've probably seen the flat hub redesign that happened about a month or two months ago. Uh, it looks really nice. And so it looks like Canonical also has a redesign uh, for their snapcraft.io website, which is basically the web component of the Snap Store. Uh, they just unveiled their new redesign. And I'm not insinuating that they did that just because Flathub also had a redesign. They, they probably were working on that for longer. Uh, they aligned this rebranding with the canonical branding across all their other websites. So you get you, the usual black header, you've got the white background, and the Snap logo is now orange instead of using a, a color scheme like, I think it was green and orange, and now it's just orange. The website doesn't seem to have any auto dark mode support though, which kind of sucks. And yeah, it's a, it's a slight redesign. Like it's basically just the homepage and the main header. They haven't changed everything like Flathub did. It, it's more muted in terms of what they changed. But apparently it's just the first part of what they want to do. Uh, they want to restructure the information in snap listings to ensure that it's as legible as can be, that you can find the various channels, that you have small guides on how to add snap to your distro if that's something you want to do. They also want to work on documentation and tutorials uh, to make creating a snap, publishing it easier, or just installing snap on any distro easier. They want to redesign the homepage to showcase uh, more snaps. Basically, they want to redo the whole site and they just delivered on the first component of that. And they also want your feedback on what they could improve and what they've already done. So they have a survey you can fill out. It's pretty quick. It's like 10 or 15 questions. Uh, they say six minutes, but you can fill it in in like three. Uh, and you'll get questions about the new site, the new layout, why you visit it, how you heard about snaps, but also what you generally think about snaps, what they could improve, uh, what are the biggest problems you have with snaps. So if, if you don't think snaps are the absolute devil and that they should be abandoned in favor of Flatpak, then you can go and fill out this survey. I know I did, uh, and I'll let them know what I think about snaps. Well, well, no, don't worry, I didn't insult anybody or anything. That's not my style. Uh, I was constructive. So you can let Canonical know what you think. And I mean, I'm not a big snap user on the server, why not? I think they're cool uh, on the server, especially for setting up like Nextcloud or stuff like that. Being able to install a full Nextcloud instance in one command line is just so easy compared to installing it manually that, yeah, obviously, it has its uses on servers. On desktops, I don't quite see the point compared to flat packs or, or app images, but they're here too, and, and they serve a purpose, and they've evolved quite a bit recently. The only thing that really I don't like right now about Snaps is like the proprietary store backend. They could open source it. There's no real reason not to. They just don't want to because they think no one will contribute to it, which is probably also true. So yeah, if you don't hate Snaps, if you're neutral or if you like them, go tell Canonical what you think about their web portal and their packaging format. Now, we also have some news about Zorin OS, and no, it's not Zorin 17, because that won't land until Ubuntu 24.04 is released, because they only follow the LTS release schedule. Uh, but they announced that they've just solved one of the major hurdles for Zorin OS users, which was that you could not do an in-place upgrade. You had to completely reinstall your whole system for every new major release which sucked. Uh, it sucks. Even if it's only every two years, it sucks. It's not useful because if you install the new major release exactly when it, when it was out, two years, okay, maybe. But if you start using Zorin OS 16 like eight months before the new release comes out, then you're going to have to reinstall. Well, you might have to reinstall in eight months, which is just not enough. It's not good. It's not a good experience. So they now offer an upgrade tool 
which not only will let you upgrade from one major version to the next, so for example, it lets you upgrade from Zorin OS 15 to 16, it will let you upgrade from 16 to 17 when 17 is out, but it also lets you move between editions uh, of Zorin OS. So you can, for example, have installed the basic Zorin, and you want to support the project, so you can upgrade to a pro Zorin OS Pro, which is basically the same thing, but with more pre-configured layouts for your desktop, more pre-installed apps, a few other nice things, and it's basically there to support the project. Like, you buy your Pro license, it's relatively cheap, I think it's like 30 bucks, uh, you don't have to buy it, but if you like the project and you want to support it, you can do that, and so this upgrade tool lets you move to that release. You don't have to reinstall Zorin OS Pro uh, instead of just keeping the system that you already know and like, so that's cool. And honestly, it's weird to praise the distribution for letting you do in-place upgrades, but since it was a major pain point, I think it's cool that they added that. Uh, some other distributions could definitely take inspiration from that, especially elementary OS, which still doesn't let you do that. And it sucks. It really sucks. So in usual Zorin fashion, this upgrading tool is super easy to use. You just follow the prompts and it lets you upgrade in place, straight from the internet. You don't have to download an ISO, US, a USB key, whatever. It works just like on any other distro that lets you do an in-place upgrade. It's just a beta for now, but you can download it and you can test it. If you're on Zorin OS 15 and you want to move to 16, but you put it off because you didn't want to reinstall your system, well, now you can give it a shot. Of course, it's a beta, so you have to be willing to take the risk to screw up your installation, but... I would be surprised if it didn't work well. I mean, transitioning from one Ubuntu LTS to another is already well established. It, it works, so no reason not to give it a shot. And honestly, since elementary OS also only does major releases from one Ubuntu LTS release to the other, they could probably partner up with Zorin and use that tool as well, see how it could work for them, and they could help improve it. The, the upgrade path can't be that different, so they could just use the backend scripts uh, that, that they probably use and just do an elementary OS GUI on top of that. But yeah, come on, let's pull resources here and make sure that elementary OS can also benefit. They really need that as well. Now, if you always found the System76 Telios to be really nice looking desktops, but you found them maybe too expensive or they didn't ship to your country, well, now you can just buy their case. Uh, you can buy the Thelio case. Uh, they, they call it the Nebula case, and they have it in three different form factors. You've got the Mini ITX for $200, uh, the ATX and smaller for $269, and the EATX and smaller for $329. Now, you can order these cases with various options, including all the accent color panels that you can swap uh, that's a big feature of the Thelios, of, of recent Thelios. You have this accent color that can be wood or a specific color or, or various designs, and you can hot swap them to just configure your, your PC to look exactly what li like you want it to, which is cool. Now, you can also choose to add a cooler for the CPU area, a GPU intake fan, you can add a SATA backplane, and these are pretty well-designed cases uh, from what I read and from what I'm seeing. Uh, they have drive screw storage compartments, so you're never going to lose the screws you need to add a new drive in a bracket. It's very easy to open. You can just lift the whole lid, kind of like what you got on the newest Mac Pros. You lift the whole protective lid, and then you have access to all the internals, uh, all the sides, so you can cable manage easily. You can access every compartment easily. It looks cool. And they also have two separate cooling areas, one for the CPU, 
and one for the GPU, and each cooling area has their own fans, so things should stay nice and cool, and that's why they let you pick uh, the various fans. If you want to have already built-in case fans, or if you want to bring your own, you can. So it looks pretty good, and honestly, that's something I might do if I liked assembling PCs, but I don't. I think it's a tedious task, and i much rather buy pre-builds, uh, especially since right now the savings you have in terms of picking your parts are not very good. Uh, for example, I bought a pre-build uh, for my for my SteamOS console, and doing the exact same configuration on PC part picker, I would have saved 100, 100 euros, which I probably would have uh, lost in shipping alone, so, not that interesting, honestly, these days. Well, at least not for the configuration that I tested out. But if you love building PCs, and if you find the, the Thelio case uh, really nice looking, and you want to use it, well, now you can, and I think it's pretty cool. And also, if I remember correctly, it's completely open source. Uh, like, they have the complete schematics for this case, uh, so you could, like, replicate it, or design something that you could add on to it. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's completely open source and you can get all the schematics or even like 3D print it if, if you want it or get it created by somebody who, who does metal work, you can. Now, uh, uh, last article before we move on to the gaming news, uh, we're going to talk about privacy and data collection a little bit. There are some concerning developments in Ireland because the government is trying to slot an amendment to a specific bill that would basically make it illegal to criticize the Irish Data Protection Commission. Uh, this is their body that is generally in charge of keeping big tech companies in line. Uh, each time where, where you see the EU fining like Facebook or Apple or, or whatever else or Google, it comes from the Irish Data Protection Commission uh, because most of these companies are based in Ireland. So Ireland is the first line of defense against like data collection practices and breaches to the GDPR and stuff like that. But this commission is also known for being very lenient towards these companies. And it's probably on orders of the Irish government because the Irish government offers tax breaks for these companies specifically, which is why they're all implemented in Ireland. And if Ireland seems to be too willing to tax them for everything or to fine them when they breach something, then they might want to look at other countries. So they're basically super lenient and you feel that, that the Irish Data Protection Commission is always super lenient because generally until other EU countries go and weigh in, because all these violations are decided at EU level, they're introduced by a specific commission, but then other countries in the EU say, okay, your response is like too low or too high, we need to vote on it. And so other countries generally attribute way higher fines than what the Irish Data Protection Commission would have done. And so now you probably will not be able to, to criticize a ruling of this Data Protection Commission. This new change would just mean that this commission could say, this ruling is not shared openly. It, its, its details are not to be disclosed. This is basically under an NDA. So the person who brought the lawsuit or the case for a GDPR breach could not talk openly about it, which is very weird. And fines could be up to 5,000 euros for people who fail to comply and discuss the case openly. So anyone who wanted to complain about a decision of the Data Protection Commission would basically be fined. Uh, they would say, hey, you know what, they were super lenient, or they didn't even fine Facebook for stealing data from thousands of users and transferring it to the US, which is not allowed. Uh, if, if the Data Protection Commission decided that, you know what, these details are not to be shared, and you shared them, you would be fined, which is 
not normal. These should not be confidential decisions. They're here for the customer's transparency on what companies are doing, so they should never be under an NDA. The only reason why they would be under an NDA is that the Data Protection Commission has basically under the table deals with these companies to exchange a little bit of money in, in exchange of just not being too harsh on them. It's bad. It's really bad. And what's more, the bill doesn't say what details might be considered sensitive or confidential. So any ruling could be considered confidential. And that's what I'm expecting we would see. So we have a governing body that's supposed to make sure that giant tech companies don't misuse user data. And this body has a history of not really doing that or not doing it to the full extent of what they should do until other countries get involved. They, they even sued, like the Irish Data Protection Commission even sued other data protection boards from other EU countries. They're generally in favor of the companies and not of the user. And now if this law passes, if you're unhappy with the ruling, well, first, the public will never know what was in the ruling. And if someone knows and talks about it, they'll be fined. What the hell? It, this is not normal at all. So I thought it was worth bringing it up because it kind of sucks. Okay, and now let's finish this show with the gaming news, and there's a lot to discuss this week. Uh, first, uh, still on the AMD driver, still getting better over time, uh, the RADV driver, which is included in Mesa, gains support for a feature called Fragment Shader Interlock. And I could not quite wrap my head around what it does, because I am not good at understanding shaders and the recent graphic pipelines, uh, but it looks like this is something used by DXVK, VKD3D, and a lot of emulators, like Ryujin X, which is a Nintendo Switch emulator, uh, Xenia, the Xbox 360 emulator, and a lot more. A and even some specific games make use of that feature, like A Plague Tale Re Requiem, for example. Uh, so this feature will make gaming on Linux on an AMD GPU better. It will give you better performance with DXVK, VKD3, and Vulkan in general, and better performance in emulators. So yeah, basically AMD hardware ages like fine wine, and like the more time passes, the better it gets. It's really insane. And since we're on the topic of graphics, it looks like Valve hired another graphic driver developer uh, called Alyssa Rosenzweig, Apparently, they worked on reverse engineering the Apple Silicon GPU driver, and they worked on Panfrost, the AMD Mali GPU driver for Linux. And so they will join Valve's team to work on Linux graphics drivers, on Proton, on Gamescope, and other critical Valve projects for the Steam Deck and their, their gaming vision for Linux, basically. So this in itself is not surprising. Like, yes, of course, Valve wants to hire more developers, but... One might wonder, uh, do they need another developer to improve the drivers for the Steam Deck? Not sure. Uh, it's been released more than a year ago. They are still improving the drivers for that, but I don't think they would need a full-time position just for that. So this could indicate a push towards making SteamOS a, a better option for various hardware partners by working on improving drivers and making sure that like companies who wanted to ship SteamOS on their hardware would get a better experience. Or it could be preliminary work on a new version of the deck or a hardware revision that would use a, another AMD uh, APU. Or it could just be to optimize how things are running on the Steam Deck. But this doesn't seem super likely. The architecture is already pretty much maxed out these days. Like they've been improving it for more than a year now, plus all the preliminary work that came before the Steam Deck was released. So I would say it's probably to work on newer 
drivers, and that's pretty cool. Now, since we're on the Steam Deck, it reached the 10,000 games officially playable, uh, which is insane. Well, it's about a little bit more than 6,500 playable games and a little bit more than 3,400 verified games. Uh, but that's still 10,000 in total, which is really, really good. Like, it's better than any console ever had, I, I think. And of course, this verified program isn't perfect. Just because a title is marked as playable or verified doesn't mean you'll have an awesome experience on Steam Deck. Uh, sometimes it's super stuttery. You, you seem to find that sometimes if it runs at 25 FPS in a third of the game, it's okay. If it's 30 FPS through the rest of the game, it's, it's not generally perfect, but it's still a good indication of what things run and don't run. And that's after about five years of having Proton available. So in five years, there's 10,000 games uh, that are officially playable and a lot more that Valve never even looked at and a lot more that are generally Linux compatible but wouldn't run well on a deck. So people who think that Linux is a bad platform for gaming just need to look at this timeline. In five years, we can now play, what, 60-70% of all Steam titles when you could play something like 5% before Proton? If you give us another five years, I would be surprised if we couldn't run virtually everything, like except some really edge cases, anti-cheat things from boneheaded developers. And on the topic of Proton, the core components have been updated, Wine and VKD3D. Uh, we got Wine 8.11, which improves mouse cursor clipping, it adds support for TLS alerts, and it fixes 26 bugs, including for StarCraft 2, for Microsoft Office, but the version isn't specified, for Steam, or Ubisoft Connect. And VKD3D gained performance improvements and better shader support through the high-level shader language, or HLSL. Uh, note that it's VKD3D and not VKD3D Proton. Uh, Proton has its own fork of VKD3D, which is different from VKD3D shipped as is in Wine, but they, sh they still share a lot of code, so these improvements could come to VKD3D Proton, or they actually could come from VKD3D Proton and were backported to the regular VKD3D. And still on the topic of Wine, uh, to finish this, uh, the, the support for Wayland on Wine has progressed even further. We have the next part of that work, which is, I think, the fourth step of the development process, which has been merged uh, and will probably land in Wine 8.12, so in two weeks. Uh, this latest batch of code should give all the bare minimum feature set to display the contents of a window using a software renderer. So this implies that graphical acceleration isn't there yet. These windows cannot be interacted with just yet, they're just displaying something, but still, it's moving along nicely. And so, as I said, it should land in 1.8.12. And I've been trying uh, Wayland Gaming recently on, uh, on my editing rig, uh, because I, I just switched to Wayland on that, and I wanted to see how well it worked. I can't say I noticed too much of a difference between X11 and X Wayland for the games that work, because most titles runs no problem, and... I can't say I noticed any performance difference on my NVIDIA RTX 3070 between X11 or Wayland. If there's a difference, it's like 1 or 2 FPS. You can't notice it. But frame pacing is a little worse under Wayland, and some games just flat out do not run. Uh, which is surprising, because they should. Like, there shouldn't be any compatibility problems, but there are. So, the sooner we can get Wayland support in Wine, the better everyone its experience will be for gaming on Linux. So this will conclude this podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, I left all the links uh, in the show notes so you can read more on specific articles if you want. If you want to react to any of this, you can leave me a comment on the website podcast.thelinuxexp.com and if you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!